Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, August the 23rd, 2019, and this is episode 2497 of the Survival Podcast. As it is a Friday, it's time for listener counsel, I'm sorry, an expert counsel Q&A. Uh, we've got a pretty good lineup of the expert counsel set up for you today. Here's who you're going to hear from and about what. Patrick Warman is going to talk about restoring old tools and knives. Gary Collins is going to talk about choosing a fifth-wheel RV as a first-time buyer. Derek Bonpietro is going to give us some more information on house, whole house standby generators from a call I took last week. Uh, we're going to talk about making a peach mead with Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer. Garden and uh, homestead tool storage and maintenance with Ben Falk of Whole Systems Design. And can you ever really know when to pull out of the stock market with John Pugliano? And I'm going to talk today about when something outside your circle of, is, is just totally outside your circle of control and really outside your circle of influence, but it's still a big concern and it's kind of a global political issue. And I'm also going to talk about a little bit with that how we in the United States often really practice do what I do as I say and not as I do with other nations and kind of look down our nose at things that we ourselves have done in spades uh, because today we know more, but you know we advanced by doing it, and now well, it'll all make sense when I get to it. Anyway, before we get to that, let's go ahead and take a look at this week in history. Uh, not today, but actually Wednesday, the 21st is the anniversary of one of the lower moments, in my opinion, of United States government uh, performance. And the cost lives. I'm talking, of course, about the shootings at Ruby Ridge. I don't call it the shootings at Ruby Ridge, though. That's what they call it on the History Channel for this day in history. Um, I call it the killings at Ruby Ridge, because that's what it was. I'm going to read to you so you know that there's no... Um, impartiality from me as I read the, 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 uh, what happened. I'm reading directly from History Channel here at History.com. In the second day of a standoff at Randy Weaver's remote northern Idaho cabin atop Ruby Ridge, FBI sharpshooter Lon Horvick uh, wounds Randy Weaver and Kevin Harris and then kills Weaver's wife, Vicki. Randy Weaver, an alleged white supremacist, had been targeted by federal government for selling two illegal sawed-off shotguns to an undercover alcohol, tobacco, and firearms informant. On August 21, 1992, after a period of surveillance, U.S. Marshals came upon Harris Weaver, Weaver's 14-year-old son Sammy, and the family dog on a road near the Weaver property. A marshal shot and killed the dog, prompting Sammy to fire at the marshal. In the ensuing gun battle, Sammy and U.S. Marshal Michael Deegan were shot and killed. A tense standoff ensued. On August 22nd, the FBI joined the marshals besieging Ruby Ridge. Later that day, Harris Weaver and his daughters, Sarah, left the cabin, allegedly for the purpose of preparing Sammy's body for burial. FBI sharpshooter Lon Hirucki, uh waiting 20, 200 yards away, Open fire allegedly because he thought Harris was armed and intending to fire on a helicopter in the vicinity. I am going to pull out for a second. Bullshit, okay? Next thing. Horiki wounded Weaver, and the group ran to a shed where Sammy's body was living. 
When they attempted to escape back to the cabin, Harichi fired again, wounding Harris as he dove through the door and killing Vicky Weaver, who was holding the door open with one hand and cradling her infant daughter in the other. Horiki claimed he didn't know that Vicky Weaver was standing behind the door. Harris Weaver and Weaver's three daughters surrendered nine days later. The controversial standoff spawned a nationwide debate on the use of force by federal law enforcement agencies, and a U.S. Senate panel accused the federal agencies involved of substantial failures in their handling of the Ruby Ridge operation. And of course, I'm back on my own now. The federal government said, you know, we learned from this, there were mistakes made, and We're going to do things differently. And less than a year later, in February of 1993, we burned a shitload of people to death down in Waco, proving that they had learned nothing. Now, there are people, when this gets covered, they get very upset and said, that Randy Weaver, that, that KKK Klansman guy, if he would have just come down and went to court like he's supposed to, this would have never happened. Uh, well, the last part of that is at least true. See, alleged white supremacists. So they take this basically, you know, what we would call a narc, and they say, go get Weaver to sell you some guns and ask him about this, you know, uh, this Aryan Nation thing or something. Well, he doesn't do shit about the Aryan Nation. He does eventually sell this guy guns, and I'm not going to go into it today, but there was a lot of manipulation to get this done. And in the end, what he sold the guy was a couple guns with barrels cut shorter than a, a, a allowed limit. Uh, which was stupid, because if you tell me you want a sawed-off shotgun, here's a shotgun, here's a saw, go saw the damn thing off yourself. Get out of my face. So that was a stupid decision. In the end, though, you're talking about a guy living in a little house up in the middle of nowhere, minding his own damn business that, you know, they say, well, if Randy Weaver wouldn't have, would have just showed up, this would have If you didn't go and trap the damn guy for some bullshit, it wouldn't have happened. I mean, to me, I think law enforcement needs to be a lot more like the fire department. You know, the fire department, they're going to the store or something, they're in a fire truck because they're on call all the time. They, You've seen them at the supermarket, and they're driving down the road, and they see a fire. They'll go put that shit out. Otherwise, they show up when they're called. That's what they do. And, and I think we need law enforcement to do more of that and be a little bit more like that than going out trying to actively not, not anticipate a crime, not catch criminals in the act before they actually are able to pull off what they're trying to do, but actually entice someone to commit a crime. Yeah, we call that entrapment. Now, let's ex let's just examine what could have been done differently here. So you got this dude. He lives up in his cabin. He does leave the cabin once in a while. If they had never sent marshals in or anything, they just could have put him under surveillance. And when he drove down the road and went into town, which he would have eventually done, they could have just walked up to him and said, you need to come with us. This was cowboy heroics that resulted in the murder of innocent people. Because the only person here that can even be hung with a crime is Randy himself. The kid that got shot, well, he shot at a federal agent. He thought he was being shot at, you big dumbass. Because they shot the dog. And see, we haven't learned from that either, because it seems like no cop seems resistant to shooting a damn dog. They're shooting dogs left and right. And you know why they shoot dogs? Because they can and they want to shoot something. I'm telling you, that's what's going on. That's what went on back here and it resulted in horrors that were only to become worse about eight months later. Our finest hour, not so much. Ruby Ridge, 1992.
this week in history. Uh, on to something a little bit happier. If you'd like to be part of episode 2500, please call the jerk line and tell us how TSP has made your life a little bit better. You can do that by calling the jerk line. And, of course, the number to call us on the jerk line for inclusion in episode 2500 is 877-644-1345. You got today, if you're listening to this, as published on Friday. You got tomorrow, Saturday. I'm cutting it off. And next week we will have episode 2500, which will be uh, well over 100 calls right now from folks out there in the audience that want to tell us about how TSP has impacted their lives. It's going to be one for the history books. You really want to be part of this if you're part of this community. Uh, don't be afraid to call in. I mean, a lot of people, I just think I don't sound good on the phone. Just call in two minutes or less and say, hey, you're a big jerk, and because of you, this stuff happened. Write it down. Read it. It's easy. If you totally flub it, you know, if you just like, uh, uh, I don't understand why I did this. I'm sorry. Don't put this on the air, and you hang up. I won't do it to you. I'm not going to do that to anybody. Don't worry. A couple of people called in twice. You know, like they flubbed up the first call. They just hung up and called back. I will get rid of the flub call. I'm good at this. I'm a professional. I've been doing this a long time. I listen to each call before they go up. Don't worry. Come on, call on in and leave your message. The Jerk Line, 877-644-1345. With that, let's go ahead and hear from our first expert council member today, Patrick Rohrman on the pros and cons of restoring old tools and knives. Hey, guys, it's Patrick Rohrman with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert council question of the week. Today's question comes from PA Prepper from MeWe Monday Chat. This is for Patrick. Pros and cons of restoring antique knives, axes, and size. Well, I'm a huge fan of uh, finding some antique tool and restoring it. Here's just a few pros and cons that I listed. Let's start with the pros to begin with. A lot of times you're going to find some really decent steel in some of the older knives or even axes, where today a lot of the stuff you find in stores is... Uh, really poor quality steel. Some of these older tools have really good steel and can take a really keen edge. That's definitely a positive for restoring an old tool. Next, sometimes you can find some really good prices on some old knives or axes. I've seen knives for, you know, less than five or ten dollars and you know, they're, they're a really good knife and you could restore them. They also make a great beginner project. You could go pick up an old knife that maybe has got a loose handle or missing handle and restore it. And that's, you know, a great way. Kind of a knife, antique knife kits.com. And last but not least, it's hard to make it worse than it already is. So a lot of times these tools are in pretty poor shape and you know, anything you do to them is going to make them better, shy of if you end up breaking one or ruining the temper in it. Give it a good shot and restore an old tool. As far as uh, cons go for it, you kind of need to know what you're looking for. There's definitely some tools out there that are very valuable if you know what you're looking for. And, you know, especially you wouldn't want to take something that could be a nice collector item and go to restoring it and ruin the value of what you have. 
sometimes some of the things you're going to find in these antique stores or flea markets are going to be severely overpriced. In fact, sometimes they're even damaged. And sometimes that you don't know that until you start peeling off the layers of corrosion or rust and you might find a, a crack in the tool or something that you didn't see before that makes it pretty well worthless. I would say be sure not to pay too much and especially if you get something at a really good price it's not going to hurt to uh, learn how to restore some tools on the cheap. So thanks for your question PA. If anybody else has any questions for me I'll be more than happy to help you if I can. This has been Patrick Rorman with mtknives.net. Have a great day. I guess my only addition to one of the pros of doing this is if you get good at it, you could make quite a bit of money. I don't remember the guy now. There's a dude that's doing like killing it on eBay. And he goes around and finds old axes and wood planes and stuff like that. He does a really top-notch job of restoration, sharpening, etc. And then he puts them up for bid. And one of you guys emailed me about this probably three, four years ago, and that's why I can't remember the guy. I got tired of chasing. I I've started following him on eBay and chasing his auctions because I was like, he had this really cool double-sided Polish axe one time and some other cool stuff. And I was like, I, I want to... I want to pick one of those up. Like I'm the kind of guy I like to have stuff like that, uh, especially the way he was doing the restorations. They were just gorgeous. And so I started bidding on his stuff, and it always went higher than I was willing to pay. And I'm the kind of guy, if I really want something, I'll pay a little more than it's worth for it, you know, if it's a one-off thing. And, and it went out of my price range every time. And I bet a lot of this stuff he didn't have but a few dollars and, you know, maybe ten hours in. And, and I'm talking hundreds of dollars for these items. I'm not paying $400 for an axe, but somebody did it. Um, so I'm just saying that's that's another possible pro. Next up, I have a question for Gary Collins on choosing a fifth-wheel RV, specifically as a first-time buyer. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the thesimplelifenow.com, where we discuss all things making your life simple and better. That's the point, right? And make sure, guys, you guys know I'm not on social media a whole lot. You can always stay up to date at the Simple Life Now for, oh, hold on, screwed it up, thesimplelifenow.com forward slash freedom. That's right. It's all about freedom. Levi has a great question getting uh, started in the RV world. Him and his wife plan to pick up their first fifth wheel. And live in it as they decide what they're going to do and possibly travel around the country. For me, the best advice I can give, I would love to give you brands and names and all that. There are so many RV manufacturers today. I wouldn't even know where to begin. I am, I'm a, a fan of Northwood, which makes a, an RV travel trailers of fifth and actually campers as well. They make Arctic Fox and Nash. Arctic Foxes are known to be pretty much the gold standard in the RV industry, but the downside is they ain't cheap and used. They're not cheap and they're hard to find because people tend to hold on to them for a very, very long time. I own a Nash, uh, a, a 20, 24 foot travel trailer. I love it. I've had it for uh, three years now, three, four years, and the thing's awesome. Now, basics. 
the basics would be, and I, I describe this in my book, The Simple Life Guide to RV Living, which is for beginners. So if you're looking to get started, I highly recommend that book. <clears throat> That's why I wrote it. Would be get an all seasons rated fifth wheel. What does that mean? Four seasons is basically, it's going to have more insulation and it's going to be built for more severe climates. So it could have a better air conditioner, better heater, um, better ducking for those systems. Those are the biggies. And then also dual pane windows. Huge. I had to learn this the hard way. I did not have those in the beginning. And once I have had them now, I will not, never not own one with them. Now, if you buy an RV without those, basically, it's more for just camping here and there, not living. I always say if you don't have a four-season rated RV with dual-pane windows, you're going to cook in the summer and you're going to freeze in the winter. They're just not made for, without that, they're just not made for the extremes. Also, since you have a dog, make sure it has an outside shower. And it doesn't mean a fold-out shower and you step in it. It just has a basic nozzle that runs hot and cold water. I've also had RVs without them, without it. I had two with and one without. And I'll tell you what, the one without, it was a bummer. It's just so much easier to have that thing to deal with dogs and dirty barbecues and just rinsing off stuff. Um, as far as, you know, buying from a dealer or private, it just depends. Um, private, you get what you get if it's used. With a dealer, you're at least going to get some sort of warranty, and they'll be able to kind of run you through a lot more of the basics and different models. Used, if you can, and you want to find the one that someone bought it, thought it was a great idea, used it once, and then parked it on the side of their house. Those are the best ones because they're basically brand new, and you get them for a huge discount. Um, and also size wise, I would stay around 28 feet ish. If you could on the fifth wheel, it's just easier to tow lighter. Um, you don't need that much space kind of thing. You know, you can, if you want, you can get the big old monstrosity, you know, 38 footer, but the problem is, you know, you got to tow it a, and I know some people don't care. I do. I don't like towing huge, massive things behind my truck. It makes me very nervous. Um, but also, it's only you two and your dog. So why why buy something you really don't need? A 28-footer is probably plenty of space for you guys. So I hope that helps. Again, guys, uh, I'm in the MSB member side. So any you all get 10% off your entire order and free shipping from thesimplelifenow.com. Thanks, guys. I'm going to throw in that I think that maybe if you're thinking about living in an RV, kind of do the math and figure out the size and scope of what you're going to live in. And then there are companies that will rent you an RV for camping at like a local state park or something like that. There's companies you can call them up and say, I'm, I've got a reservation for an RV pad you know, on September 20th through September 24th uh, at blah, blah, blah State Park. It's pad number, blah, blah, blah. Here's my confirmation number. I would like an RV delivered there, please. And they will come, and it's a little expensive. It's cheaper than a hotel, though. And they will tow an RV there, and they will back it in, and they will even hook it up for you. All you got to do is show up like it's a hotel room. And 
it doesn't give you a lot of experience towing one. And Gary's right. I didn't like towing an RV when I owned one. I, re I did it. Now, I was okay with it, but I didn't like it, especially when you're on a three- or four-lane highway and you end up with a semi on both sides of you, you know, matching your course and speed going around a turn where there's no shoulders. That sucks. Uh, just saying. Uh, so you won't get any experience with that part of it. But you will get experience with what it's like to be inside one. And then I don't remember what they're called, but they do make basically thermal blankets for RVs that basically are made out of look like Kind of like aluminum material, like bubbles in them and stuff. And you can get custom-made ones that cover an RV for helping you with heat and cold. I don't know how well they work, but I have seen them, and they may be worth looking into for certain temperature extremes. If you're going to be somewhere where it's really hot, find or make shade. If you're going to be somewhere where it's really cold, try to get good solar exposure. That, that's my last little bit there. With that, let's, uh, let's hear a little bit more on standby generators. I took a question on this last week that came in on the Think Line. Derek Monpietro uh, pulled a Jack Spearco. For those of you who don't know, I did this show um, remote or mobile for the first two and a half, or first year and a half, first 18 months. I did it from my car. Derek's coming to us today from his van, driving around doing what? Working on and installing whole house generators, so he knows a little bit about this. Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from Affordable DC Generators. In the work van, out slaving the fixed home standby generators today, as usual, as I call it, my slave job. And was listening to a listener call on different generator options for home standby. And just wanted to chime in, couldn't agree with Jack more on the fuel selection and that propane or natural gas, especially natural gas if it's available, are great options, period. They're a clean fuel, they just work, and as far as a home standby generator, this is going to give you the most amount of options at the lowest price point. Now, going with a diesel unit, if you wanted to step your game up, you're talking infinitely more money, more complexity, and more cost and maintenance down the road. Not to mention, you're typically not going to have service done by a smaller outfit. These are really more in the range of industrial or commercial product lines and not so much residential standby. So now you're going to run into who is going to come fix it, who's going to maintain it, and where are the parts going to be available. And sure, they're out there, but again, we're talking budget-wise much more, not only for the product, but for the installation and the maintenance in the future. So unless you really need that level of output, Uh, just just stay away from that, that arena and, and stick with your traditional natural gas and propane. And most home standby generators today are going to be dual fuel, meaning that you buy one unit and it's going to be installed according to what type of gas you're feeding it, which is really nothing more than a turn of a knob or putting a jet inside of the, the fuel mixer. So it's really the same generator. You can switch the fuel down the road, no big deal whatsoever. Just quickly to talk about different capacities. Most of the time, if you're going to be under the 10 to 12 kilowatt range, you're going to be in a sub-panel backup, meaning that the transfer switch is going to be built into a small breaker panel in the basement next to your normal one, and you're going to select which loads. This is typically going to be your fridge, your microwave, the well pump, any kind of um, sump pumps, and just your emergency-only items are going to go in this panel. and When the utility goes down, it's going to transfer just those particular loads over. And that's basically because the generator can only handle so much. And these are typically going to be smaller, single-cylinder backup generators. 
Now, when you get above that range from maybe 10 to 22 kilowatts, and 22 is just about the max you're going to get out of a residential air-cooled standby, anything bigger is going to require a liquid-cooled unit, which, again, different realm, and for the 99% of people out there, you don't want to go there, you don't need that. Those size generators are going to be whole house backup. So that means that it's going to transfer your entire breaker panel over to the generator when the utility goes down, which is great. Now, most of the time, you can power all of your loads, but if you have lots of air conditioning or an electric stove, an electric water heater, etc., the generator can't handle that. It just physically is not large enough, and there's not enough power. So particular devices, for example, Generac has isolation devices, so... When the generator is running, we can isolate certain components like that. So maybe I get one air conditioner, but not maybe three of them. So that enables you to have whole house backup and still have some large devices, but yet isolate the ones that would kill the generator. The uh, Briggs products has more of a load shed feature, which means that you can have those high demand items in a certain order program. So for example, uh, hot water, if it was electric, could be number two device and stove could be number one. So I need to take a shower, no problem. Now, if somebody turns the stove on and takes up some of that generator capacity, the hot water is going to shut off, the stove is going to kick in and allow you to cook. Now, once you're done cooking, the generator controller is going to realize this and it's going to switch that water heater back on and make hot water. So you can prioritize the high demand loads. You might put air conditioning first. Who knows? That's up to you, but you get those options, which is nice. Obviously, each one of those devices costs money and adds a little bit of install time, but gives you a lot of flexibility on powering those high demand loads using a, a standby air-cooled unit. Now, let's talk about placement real quick. Typically, you're going to have on the corner of your house where your utilities come in. You're going to have your gas meter if you have natural gas, and you're going to have your utility service where the drop comes in off the street. This is where most home standby units are going to be located. Now, this is really based on the cost of installation. So we want to keep the runs for gas and electrical as short as possible to keep the price point down. Now, if you're a particular homeowner that's like, I don't want my generator here on the corner because it's aesthetically unpleasing, or maybe you want it behind the shed or away from the house further to, to reduce the noise, that's great. You have those options. But realize that instead of just piping gas directly into the generator, now we're talking trench work. And that's basically going to be by the foot. So how far you want to go? How big is your pocket? There's no right or wrong answer to that. It really is going to boil down to what can you afford and what's inside of your budget. Now, the other thing when you're shopping these generators around, this is more of on the installer side, is how is it going to be set? A professional installation is going to have a precast pad or a poured concrete pad. The generator is not going to be put directly on the ground, and there's plenty of them out there, and they're crooked, they're sinking in, they're difficult to service, and the grass is growing up through them. This is not a professional installation, and they're still being done like this. So be aware, you get what you pay for, and even then I've seen higher bids come in where there is no gen pad or concrete involved in the installation. So. You really need to look at what you're buying when you shop pricing around. Now, the other part of that, too, is who's doing the install? Is it an electrician? Obviously, the electrical work needs to be done by a licensed electrician, but they're not going to be doing service work, and nor can they troubleshoot anything, really. They're electricians. They wire things according to code. They install conduits. They're not really troubleshooters or service guys. So 
when you get an electrician to do your install, be aware that you're still going to need to get a service provider down the road. You really want to shop from maybe a more uh, inclusive company that does all of that work right up front. Lastly, let's just talk about the units that are out there, okay? I think the big, big name brands would probably be Generac, Briggs, and your Kohler units. These are the most popular. Champion just came on the scene, although there's such low, low numbers out there in the field, and I personally have not had good experience yet with any of those. Uh, I don't think their build quality on some of the components is up there yet. Uh, personally, I'm, I'm a Generac guy because I think they just have the volume and the parts availability and the support structure set up. But Kohler and Briggs are great units as well. So maybe you'd want to pick one that you have service providers in the area that can respond quickly. Don't buy a Briggs if there's no Briggs provider in your area. And always look at those warranties. Do not be sold just on the years that it says that it's covered. For example, the Champion generator is a 10-year warranty, except that years one and two, you're going to be your parts and labor, and then eight through 10 is parts only. Well, guess what? Parts can be expensive, but it's really the labor that gets you. The factory Generac five-year warranty is tiered, so one and two covers everything. Years three covers electronics, and years four and five is just the two major components from catastrophic damage. That's the engine and the alternator. But they also have an all-inclusive five-year, which covers parts, labor, and travel time for all five years. So when they're selling it, it could be a five-year, but which five-year warranty is it? They also offer a seven and a ten-year, sometimes promotionally, sometimes if you buy them extra at the end. For example, with the Briggs product, you might have a factory five-year warranty, but if you buy the Fortress model, you'll have a 10-year warranty. So again, always look at the number and what's included. Warranties will never cover batteries, fuse replacement, or any kind of maintenance. So be aware of what you're buying. When you get a 10-year warranty, that doesn't mean that the unit's going to be cared for for 10 years. It means that it's going to be covered if there's a part failure only. You're still on the hook for maintenance. So buyer beware. There's lots of great product out there, but just make sure what you're buying is what you need, what's being installed is what you purchased, and that the price point is where it needs to be for you and your application. Take care, guys. Have a good one. So good stuff from Derek. He's really been an awesome addition to the expert council. And just know that while he's here officially in the capacity for trucks and cars, and that kind of is his passion, uh, he can uh, help you out a lot with generator questions as well. So next up, we have a question for Mike and Sue Laprise. This is an interesting one. Uh, more and more people are homeschooling, and that's the you know Mike and Sue can answer all kinds of questions about parenting and doing activities and learning and stuff with your, your kids beyond just the homeschool side of it, just so y'all know, and, and fostering and adoption too, because they have a lot of experience with that. Um, but they, you know, their, their central wheelhouse and the thing they're passionate about is spreading the message of homeschooling. And more and more people are doing it. But it can be intimidating, especially when you take the first step and actually say, my kid is not going back to school this year, and you're worried that maybe someone will show up and go, why aren't your kids in school? So understanding what the rules are in your state so that you can stand firm if anybody does push against what you're doing and know that you're in the right is really, really important. And then just for your own confidence, you know, you want to be in the right. And just for, like, dotting your I's and crossing your T's, man, you don't want anybody showing up in the first place 
Um, so you want to know what's right so that if they do show up, you can swat it down politely and professionally. But most of the time when we do things right, nobody shows up. So how do we find out what the rules are? And in this case, there's a specific thing that a person found during doing some research. Mike and Sue, let's talk about that. This is Michael and Sue Lepreze with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSP community. Today's question comes from Andrew in Ohio. How does one go about finding the state rules when pursuing homeschooling? My daughter will be nine this month, and so far she has been in the government school. I have always been an advocate for homeschooling, but I had to get my wife on board. Now that she's on board, she's stressing out because we have not formally notified the school. We live in Ohio. I came across this article and was curious about your thoughts on it, and is it legit? We'll send Jack the link to the article. It's an excellent example of the exceptions to the rule that is buried in the rules. It's good that you researched and found the article. Now you just have to continue. Google Ohio Homeschool State Organizations. You should find some local to you. Go online to MeWe and Facebook. Look for homeschool pages and start asking questions about the rules in your state. Get a handle on what you really want to ask the state officials. Then you start calling the government agencies Keep a log of every phone call, date, time, who you spoke with. In a reporting state, you have to do your homework, but don't just believe the main rules or laws you find on the front page. When you pull your kid out of school in Texas, the school will tell you that you have to tell them all kinds of things, but the law says you only have to tell them that you're homeschooling. They'll say, we understand that, but what curriculum are you using? What experience do you have? I got this the one year that we sent our kid to government school. I didn't know you had to withdraw your kid from school, so they called me a few days after the next school year started, and I kept telling the nice lady that the law says you have to say you're homeschooling. And she just kept asking questions, and I said, would you like me to get my state representative, Kempel, to call you? And then the conversation was over. It's just crazy. There's that saying I hear a lot on TSP social media that doesn't raise the temperature of the water in my pool by one degree. This isn't true of people's choice to put their kids in government school. When you abdicate your responsibility to teach your own child, the power you give the state to impose rules on people who choose to take that responsibility is tremendous. People's choice to homeschool, even in Texas, has caused an overzealous family member or bureaucrat to report the family and have the children taken away. When homeschooling started picking up steam in the early 2000s, the government schools wanted to fight that hard, saying that homeschoolers were weakening the system by removing the brightest students and the most helpful parents. But it works both ways. These two educational paradigms impact each other. I'd recommend a book that was published in 1991 by Blair Adams, and it's called Who Owns the Children? Compulsory Education and the Dilemma of Ultimate Authority. The answer isn't don't homeschool, but homeschool within the rules of your state. Know the rules of your state and the exceptions. This would be an excellent binder to start, printing off the various things you find in case of that emergency. Back to Ohio. But just like taxation is theft, but you pay them so you don't go to prison, you have to follow the rules of your state or the same, same things can happen or worse. They could take your kids. Ohio law requires, one, a notice of intent to homeschool, and two, a yearly assessment. This is the rule for the majority of people who would like to homeschool in Ohio. However, if you have a bachelor's degree in anything, there's a separate code. Code 08-SCHOOL 
in Ohio allows for a parent with a bachelor degree to set up a non-chartered, non-tax-supported school. Some people would refer to this as your home. The primary benefit of following this option would be no assessments, no reporting to a licensed teacher, and to avoid truancy laws. But again, double-check with your local homeschool groups. So what these laws do is suck the freedom to learn and freely associate with other people out of fear of being caught doing something wrong that you were never even aware of was against the rules in the first place. Early on in the homeschool community, this led to a lot of isolation for homeschool kids because their parents were afraid of the state. I know there are also homeschool parents that don't actually homeschool their kids, but there are also school districts with a 90% dropout rate. The issue isn't a competition to see who's doing a better job teaching children, but one of freedom. Our personal experience with Buried Rules was working with CPS on our first adoption. We were told homeschooling during the foster portion of the adoption was against the law. However, I knew a woman who homeschooled six high school foster girls at a time with a self-paced curriculum. She told me to call Texas Education Region where we lived. I spoke with the person there via email since they didn't answer their phone or return calls. She told me that I had to fill out and sign a waiver. I asked if she could send that to me before we actually knew which kids we were going to get so I wouldn't have to worry about it And when we actually got those kids. Turns out there isn't actually a waiver. She was working on making one. A couple months went by and we were matched with our first sibling group, so I contacted her again, a bit more urgent this time, and she still hadn't created a waiver. So I made a waiver, a questionnaire, and answered all the questions. What is your homeschool experience? What curriculum do you use? What social groups do you belong to? Still nothing. Then we had our final visit and signed our placement papers, and I called our state rep, who in turn called the regional office person, and I had a phone call within the hour from this lady who'd put me off for months. She was the one who approved the foster homeschooling all by herself, and she'd never turn anyone down, is what she told me, except turning down all the people who gave up. What I didn't realize then was that our placement agency said it was against the law, and what they really meant was they didn't want me to do it. It all went downhill from there because I'd pissed off the lady at the top. What I find interesting is that they say it's for the child's safety they go to school, but the caseworker doesn't go to school and check on the kids. And they have 24-hour access to our home to check on the kids. They have the freedom to open every cabinet, closet, and drawer in my home during this foster period. What it comes down to is control, not what's in the best interest of the child. So remember, when designing the life you'd love to live, the more responsibility you take, the more freedom you have. And the more freedom you give your child, the more freedom the community will have. Back to you, Jack. Thanks. I think the biggest lesson in that whole call is to know what the rules are and then don't let somebody change the rules on you. That, that, that to me, is one of the most important things uh, that you can do when it comes to dealing with the government in this or any other issue. Because people that work for the school system, the government, etc., are used to being able to demand things from people and simply have those things given to them. And this is true even of law enforcement officers as well. When they go, well, I want you to do this. Well, I'm, I don't believe I'm going to do that for you because you know, I want you to do Well, no, I think I'll hold on to my property. Thank you. Are you arresting me? No. Okay, then I, you don't need to take my property from me right now, for instance, would be one example. I'm going to search your vehicle. No, you, you do not have a warrant. You're not going to search my vehicle. I'm sorry. Well, you know, I need to search your vehicle. Then you need a warrant. 
You know, I mean, whatever it is, like, you need to know what your rights are in order to assert them. And it always needs to be done professionally and politely. Just think about, let's, let's think about this from a law enforcement standpoint. You ever have a cop talk to you like you're, you're an idiot or talk to you like, like he's an asshole for no good reason and you're like, screw him? Okay, I, I agree with you. And I've had, in all my interactions with law enforcement, um, I've had a couple that I really pissed me off, but I only had one where the guy talked to me like a prick. And my thought when that happened was, you have no business speaking to me this way. I actually told him that politely. But I also realized, as I said those words, that I had no business ever speaking to one of them that way either. Do unto others type of situation. And you definitely need to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but you also need to know your rights. Because anybody with the authority of the state behind them has additional power. And what does power do? It corrupts. And corrupting power in the mind of a small-minded individual creates bullies. And that's mostly what you heard Sue talking about there, was people being bullies. Demanding things because they could and generally got the answer they asked for. And I am all for standing up for your rights, but always do so professionally and courteously. Next up, let's make some mead with Michael Jordan. Peach mead, that is. Hey, I'm Michael Jordan of AB Friendly Company in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of fine meads. Hey, I really want to apologize and say sorry I haven't been on so much. I've been running a program on commercial beekeeping on how to make $500 per hive per year. This has been a great year for honey this year, and things have been going extremely hardcore for me. So I just wanted to tell you, thanks for still tuning in and listening, and I hope that I can answer your questions and get to you now that honey flow's about stopped. Well, I got a question from Aaron on making a peach mead. A good peach mead is not hard, but it's going to be above a beginning stage. I've made this one in the past and ended up making it into a spritzer by putting a little bit of ginger ale or 7-Up in it. Also pretty good at is the barbecue sauce. When you add it to a barbecue sauce, it gives just enough citrus notes to make a lighter to the meats like pork and chicken. It tastes simply amazing. So in making a mead, think of placing some quail in a pan and soaking this mead and then adding your barbecue sauce and putting it out on your grill. Man, it's super good. But let's talk about peach mead. Peaches are a little bit harder to make in a mead. Trying to get the full good flavor without like a rubbing, rubbing alcohol taste is a trick. I tend to add peaches after fermentation to get a really good peach flavor. So let's go ahead and make a mead. We're going to go ahead and yield a one-gallon batch. And the ingredients are four to five pounds of peaches. And I'd pit them and dice them. I'd add one cup of sugar, juice two lemons, three pounds of honey, and I prefer orange blossom honey to this mead. One teaspoon of acid blend, one teaspoon of petric enzyme, one pack of Red Star Premier Blanc yellow pack yeast, one teaspoon of yeast nutrient, I like Fermid K or Fermid O, a quarter teaspoon of grape tannin. I also want you to set a little bit of honey to the side for a little boost when we're going to talk about a little bit later. Well, the directions, 
first you're going to juice your peaches until you have about a gallon of peach juice. And then I want you to freeze the rest. And it's going to be about a cup to a cup and a half of diced up peaches. Pour your peach juice, sugar, and lemon juice into a two-gallon container. In a very large pot, I want you to boil your three pounds of honey. This is called the brochet. It's changing the honey into a more of a caramel taste. Man, when you boil honey, you don't go wrong with it because it's great on pancakes. I want you to pour, pour the caramelized honey into the peach juice and let it sit for about 24 hours. Give it a good mix. Make sure it's all mixed in with all the le all the peach juice and sugar and all that. And get it really mixed up really good. And I want you to make sure you cover your container. In 24 hours, I want you to add the acid blend, the petric enzyme, and the tanning agent. And give it a good jostle. You know, a little bit of a shake. Pour the yeast on top of it. Unless you're going to do a yeast starter. Then I want you to pour about a coffee cup of this mix out. Pour your yeast into the coffee cup and let it sit for about 5 to 10 minutes. Then dump it all back into the jug. Once you get it into your fermentation device, give it a little jostle again. Make sure that the yeast nutrients and everything are mixed up really good and the yeast is really active. If you want to go into top core, make sure you're watching your yeast, checking it, degassing it every 12 hours. But for the most part, after a vigorous fermentation, it is going to complete rack one gallon jug. takes about five days. So after you have this huge fermentation, five days later, I want you to rack it off. And 36 days after racking it off into the bucket, I want you to go ahead and add your peaches. So it takes five days for the vigorous fermentation for everything to go. And then 36 days later after that, I want you to rack it off into a bucket. I want you to place the frozen peaches in that in that bucket or in your gallon jug. And then pour your bucket of peach juice that's fermented over it. I want you to let this sit for about three months. The peaches are going to break up with all the enzymes and everything that's going on. And you're going to get a great peach taste with your meat. In about three months, rack this into another jug. And this is the cool part. Add five tablespoons of honey and really give this a good shake and mix up. Make sure that this is really good. I'd let it sit for about one hour and then rack it all off and then bottle it. Now bottle this in swing top containers for this mead is going to pop, right? Corks will not do because they'll be pushed out because the extra fermentation that happens. Let this sit into a cellar for one week to a month to get the bubbles going. Man, you just made a carbonated peach mead. Now, this is not my peach Bellini mix, but man, this is a really good peach mead. You're going to get a good flavor at it, and by doing this, you're going to get a good alcohol content because three pounds of honey is roughly 15% alcohol, plus you added sugar as well as the sugar contents that's in the peaches. Now, this mead will be a semi-sweet mead, and will be like pouring like a weak champagne with a good peach aftertone. I feel that you want more booze taste. Let this sit in the primary fermentation instead of for 30 days to about 60 days. And then add your frozen peaches. Let the yeast and all the sugar sit in. 
Hey, I just want to let you guys know. Yeah. What's up? Longboarding. <laughs> That's my son. He wants to go longboarding. So this is probably a good time to start wrapping everything up so I can go spend some time with him. I'm Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer, telling you get your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Get it from a small cottage company for a better product and to get someone starting out a good head start. And as I've always told you, help your fellow man. Because one day, man, you're going to need some help too. All right, buddy, let's go ahead and get this done and go a little skateboarding. Is it just me or does Michael sound like he's got a little more snap in him right now than he than he used to? Just it just seems like he's kind of a little more up tempo and, and and what have you than than before. And I, I mean, in a, totally in a good way, right? It just seems that way to me. Uh, maybe it's just me, but just kind of good to hear him sound like that. Anyway, next up we have a question for Ben Falk on the storage of tools. Uh, garden tools, etc. on the homestead. Ben, take it away. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design, the Expert Council. The question about storing uh, tools, garden tools, um, and tools in, in general, maybe. Um, you know, great question. Uh, there's really a lot of, like, what, it depends, you know, what kind of tools. I mean, you know, I consider like a kitchen knife a garden tool and that's, you know, getting stored indoors, dried off each time because I'm a big fan of a high carbon steel knife that's not stainless steel so you can actually sharpen it really well and it's going to rust so you, and it's brittle so you don't want to dent it and you want to keep it in good shape so you just dry it off when you're done and put it in a knife block or on top of the toaster oven or somewhere where it's not, you know, you never put it in the dishwasher. You never put it in the dish rack, you know, where it's going to bump up against other stuff. Um, and then there's, you know, things like pruners, hand pruners. And I was just tuning up those this morning, and I try to keep those in uh, a conditioned space where they're not going to rust at all. Um, I mean, that, that I think, goes... Um, is true for a lot of the finer tools where rust is a concern. It, depending on your climate, um, you have to store it in a little bit of a conditioned space if it's definitely not going to rust or really oil it up um, or or both if you're in a really humid climate. Um, so some of the finer tools have to get treated that way, you know, oiled up and or brought into uh, you know, at least a mildly conditioned space, like the a mudroom of a house, things like that. Um, for us, we're in a kind of somewhat not too rough of a climate on it. I can store a scythe in the barn all winter, and it's not going to rust um, as long as I clean it off well. Um, I'm a big fan, you know, beyond um, storing tools so they don't corrode. I mean, you really have corrosion and then efficiency, or I guess the two things that come to mind. So there's the storing so that they don't go bad, they don't corrode, things like that. And then there's, you know, storing for efficiency. So the other big piece is like, well, how do you store tools so that they're very usable quickly and easily? And I'm a big fan. It's taken me many years to get to this situation, but I've seen it done in other places as well by people, I think, who are really working pretty efficiently. And um, they're storing garden tools on a vertical wall really near the garden. You could even make just a wall in the garden, you know, put up two posts and nail some boards on it and put a little roof over it so it's not getting rained on and store 
you know, a spade and a um, scythe and a soft rake and the other garden essentials. I'm actually going to walk over my wall to remind myself what's on there um, and just have that be steps from the garden or even in the garden, ideally. Um, a small broad fork I keep there. Um, a hay fork, you know, ten-tine fork, uh, not a hay fork, a mulch fork, um, ten-tine fork, a mattock, sometimes I'll, I'll kind of use in the garden, not too often, but it's there. Of course, a stirrup hoe, that's like go-to for, for my approach to gardening. Um, and as I said, a digging spade. Um, a, a, a stiff rake as well. Uh, mine is, I think, in the garden where it shouldn't be right now, but uh, that is usually hung up as well. Um, you need about a seven foot high by eight foot wide space for that kind of tool storage. Undercover, ideally, and um, safely have them mounted up there. And th that's just going to save you so much time and going digging stuff out of a shed. Like a garden shed that's closed in. It's usually a nightmare. It's usually really not very efficient. I have one. I've lived in various places where there's garden sheds. And if they're if they're not big enough to walk into and really turn around and get things easily, or you're not super organized, or both, they're just like a pot, you know, a closet with a pile of crap, you know, jammed in there, and you're just fishing one thing that's on top of the next, and you know, it's a pain in the butt. So we've all seen those situations, like a pantry that's too deep you know and you just can't get at things so shallow visible storage i think is is huge in general um finally in the last bunch of years i've got my, all my sockets like hung up on a piece of plywood that's on the wall can get moved around because i just unscrew the plywood can move that around as the space keeps adapting but getting things up and vertical i think is like really really key to efficient and effective use um, with tools. So pretty much hanging your tools vertically is a, a pretty generic recommendation that's going to help you uh, be successful, I think. But then, then it's just avoiding corrosion, as I mentioned at the beginning. Those are some of the main things. I mean, I've used the sand bucket, I think you mentioned, with oil. Um, I just like to hang. I kind of like it. I don't always use it. I like to hang a wire brush where tools are getting stored. So it's always there and um, be able to brush off, you know, the dirt off of tools, soil off of tools. So they don't, they don't rust, but uh, uh, sand with oil, like old vegetable oil, or you could use used motor oil, but then that's going to your soil um, is nice. You just jam whatever tool in there and it's going to kind of clean it off and then keep it from corroding. But I, I find a wire brush is just as good, not really any slower. Um, pretty hard to get the tool all the way down into the sand is what I found. So it's hard to do the whole tool. Um, those are some thoughts, and uh, good luck. Great stuff from Ben. Next up, I have a question for John Pugliano. Actually, a couple questions you know, combined. They're really the same question. How the hell do you know? When to get the hell out of the way of the freight train that is the next recession with your investments. John, take it away. Hey, TSP, for a financial question this week, I'm going to merge some questions that came in. They all had the common theme, though, and it's the question I get quite a lot from the audience. Everybody wants to know when you should pull out of the stock market or how do you get out before a recession or what's the one thing that you should be looking for to know, you know when things are going to fall apart. 
We had a question from Dylan asking about the accuracy of the inverted yield curve and then received another question from the tactical redneck who pretty much summed up the question pretty well by, you know, saying that, you know, he just doesn't have the time to track the economy and all these different indicators. So how does he know when to either get out before a crash is going to come or when should you just be doing some general investing? Well, let me give you a short answer before I go into what might turn into a Stephen Harris rant. The short answer is, is that I'd encourage you to keep listening to TSP and to also, if you have some time, check out my blog site over at investablewealth.com and if you have the time, also listen to my Wealth Steading podcast. And the reason I say that is that while neither Jack or I can accurately predict the future, what you can do is you can trust us to give you our honest opinion of the things that we're tracking and the things that we're looking at And we're going to do our best to give you an early warning of when things look like they're going south in the economy, and it would probably be a good idea to get out of the stock market or at least take some precautions. Now, the caveat to all this, and this is where I might go into a rant, neither Jack nor I nor anybody else can predict the future. At best, all we can do is take our knowledge and our wisdom and our experience, and we can analyze what we see going on in the current economy And we can apply that to events that have occurred in prior history. And so we come up with a hypothesis, which is really just an assessment of the overall probabilities. So we'll do our best to tell you what we think is going to happen. But what you want to avoid is, is people that claim to know exactly what's going to happen or what's going to take place. And it doesn't matter whether they say they know what's going to happen because they have insider information or because they have some secret algorithm or because they're clairvoyant, or the remote viewers, or whatever BS reason they come up with, with why they can predict the future. Because the bottom line is, is that nobody can predict the future. And if they say they can, or if they say that they can come up with, you know, 90-some percent probability of what's going to happen, well, they're either lying to you, or they're deluding themselves. In either case, you don't want to take advice from that person. There's no one event, or even a couple events, that can predict the direction of the stock market. The economy is the interaction of all the, you know, 7 billion people living on the face of the earth. And it's all those interactions that make it impossible to know exactly what the outcome is going to be. You have to also be very cautious of the source of the information you're getting because a lot of things are not news or information. They're simply marketing or sales pitches. People that twist the financial and economic data so that they can sell you some type of product or service. The other thing you have to keep in mind is that institutional leaders, whether they're from the government or from CEOs of corporations or the Federal Reserve, they're not going to come out and tell you the truth. They just can't. If Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, absolutely knew that we were headed to a recession, well, he's not going to come out and tell you that. If he did, it would create panic, and everybody would start acting like there was a recession even before the recession happened. And so simply by him acknowledging that we're headed into a recession would create a recession, even if there wasn't one. And so you really have to discount all the things you hear from these authoritative sources, because they're just not going to tell you the truth. They're always going to sugarcoat things. Think of it this way. Look back in history. What happened during World War II? The British government cracked the German Enigma Code. And so whenever the Luftwaffe was bombing England, every night before the attacks took place, the British government and Winston Churchill knew exactly what cities were going to be targeted for bombing. Well, they didn't come out and warn people. 
Had they done that, the Germans would have known that the Enigma code had been cracked and then it wouldn't have been a strategic advantage. And so they kept that information hidden from the public. So, hey, that's the reality of the situation. What I'd encourage you to do is find three or four sources of information that you feel that you can trust. Take the information that they're providing you and think about it. Evaluate it and see if it makes logical sense. Then make a decision. Remember, it's your money. Ultimately, you want to take responsibility for what you do with it. Well, hey, as always, thanks for the questions. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. I'll, I'll just add to that. I think that we are well away from going into a true recession right now. But over the next 12 months, that could change. And I think over the next 12 months, you're either going to see a serious pullback of the market and a serious pullback of the economy or a second boom. And there's a lot that that's contingent upon, like a deal with China, et cetera. Um, and there's a few other things that are going out there that if they go a certain way, you could see this economy boom in such a way next year that it'll make what's happened for the last two years look like a joke. Um, you also could see a serious recession. And we don't know which that's going to be yet, but there are indicators. And, and John and I will be keeping an eye on them and try to keep you all as informed as we can. But I want to second that um, in spite of the fact that I totally called the recession of 2008, 2009, um, I am not, uh, you know, Spirko Damas, as some people call me. Uh, I just pay attention and the truth is the only reason people didn't see that recession coming is they didn't want to and I always try to check myself and make sure when I'm saying we're not heading to a recession yet do you want that to be the case do you want that because when you want something to be the case you'll find a way to talk yourself into it so that's the biggest piece of advice I'll give you is don't let what you want dictate what you what you predict in any situation because well, you know I always tend to predict that the Steelers are going to win their playoff games, and they lose an awful lot of them, don't they? Why? Because I want them to win. That's why I make bad predictions with that kind of football. So now for my segment today. Uh, Dylan sent me this uh, from Wisconsin, and it meshes in nicely with something I've been thinking about lately. Here's what he says. This is hijack. The fires in the Amazon are certainly concerning. However, they provide an exercise and circle of concern. There is no way one individual in America can influence the event. This also got me thinking about how the North American continent during U.S. expansion experienced a similar loss of wildlife, but this is often lost to history in the eyes of the public. As a matter of circle of control slash influence, what this event tells us is to focus on building our own food forests to displace the loss of wildlife all over the world, not just the Amazon. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Cheers from Wisconsin, Dylan. Well, I want to start off with everybody's wringing their hands, gnashing their teeth, and, and blaming different people for uh, these fires in the Amazon and the overall clearing of the Amazon that's going on, which is uh, for a nice change. We're not, I mean, I'm sure there's some climate change people screaming climate change here, but you know what causes fire is flames. That's what causes fire, combustion and fuel and oxygen. And you can have the, the temperature be 71 degrees or 76 degrees or 86 degrees or 96 degrees. And if you have a good combination of fuel, uh, f uh, some sort of combustion uh, and, and oxygen, you're going to get fire. It doesn't really matter. We've had northern forests burn the same as southern ones. So that's 
the cause of it, and that is what most of even the mainstream is saying, thank for once, you know, on this. Um, but what they're saying is the new government in one of the countries that has part of the Amazon in it has really turned more toward, and of course it's right-wing, everything is bad is always right-wing, even though it's a very socialist country, toward clearing more land and putting in more crops. Now, the thing is that farming in the Amazon is really uh, not a good proposition, It, uh, the soils, uh, unless we're talking about Terra Preta, which is very, you know, limited places it is, and they still don't know how the ancients actually made that stuff. We're going to actually talk about that next week, by the way. Um, it, it's very poor soil. And you, you, you burn down a section of the rainforest, and there's enough fertility there from what you've burnt and from all the leaves and leaf drop, and it's because it's forest soil that you get a couple good years out of it. And then what generally happens is that, that farming uh, enterprise dies off. And it's abandoned, and then you go do it to something else, and the forest uh, begins to grow back in that area. It just never quite grows back the way that it is. And like I said, we're going to talk about Terra Preta, and we're going to talk about the fact that the Amazon is actually a garden created by man next week. I promise you we're going to do that. Um, we'll leave that out for today. Just wanted, I have to throw that aside in there for you. And the other side of this, though, is we sit here in America where every home has central air and heat damn near. Certainly in a good portion of the country that's the case. We sit here in a country where when this country's founding began, a squirrel, this is a, a, kind of a thing we know from history, a squirrel could have gotten in a tree on the Atlantic coast and made its way to the Mississippi River without coming down. It could have found ways to leap from tree to tree, canopy to canopy, and got across. Now, do I think that's actually true? I don't. I think it's a... It's a It's a way to try to explain the way things were, and I think sooner or later you might have found a big gap, but I don't think I think the squirrel could have definitely spent a hell of a lot more time in the trees than on the ground. I think there might have been a place or two he had to run across a glade. Because our Native Americans here practice burn, slash and burn agriculture, and our wilderness was very park-like at the time. It's something else we should probably talk about next week in conjunction with the Amazon. But we cut that down. We became one of the greatest farming powers the world has ever seen, primarily because we cut down trees. We settled a, a continent from ocean to ocean, well over 3,000 miles, and then well over 3,000 miles, catty corner to each corner of that portion, our portion of the continent. We mined coal, we mined gold, we mined silver, We drill for oil. We drill for gas. We have, we have used the natural resources of this country for good and both for evil. But one way or another, our nation, by using those natural resources, has become the single most powerful and, and, and most wealthy nation that has ever existed. And then we turn to a place like, you know, Peru and say, how dare you cut down the rainforest. Now, I know a lot of you would say, well, Jack, even though you're not an, a global warming fanatic, uh, you are an environmentalist, and you must think it's bad to cut down the rainforest. I do. 
I'm not saying it's good to cut down the rainforest. I'm not saying Peru or any other nation with rainforest in it in South America should be cutting down rainforest. I am saying, how can we, who lives a life of absolute luxury compared to the rest of the world, and frankly, Europe as well, who's a good job of looking down their noses, who raped their continent such that's a big part of why this one was settled, because Europe was so raped of resources that they needed to find a new place. Like, it was the pilgrims and they wanted to really... Bullshit, it was the nations of Europe that wanted more resources. You know, the pilgrims didn't settle this country from the Atlantic coast to the Pacific. Right? There was a lot of European nations involved. It was mainly because their resources of fish and wood and, 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 and agriculture had been so depleted. And because of modern technology, we've been able to extend that far beyond what the natural carrying capacity is. And now we look to other nations and say, don't you cut those trees down. Don't you mind those, 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 don't mind that coal. No, that's, that's bad. That's bad for the environment. Never mind what we're doing here. You don't know drilling for oil that way. Oh, that, unless we have our fingers in it and it benefits us directly, then we're like, well, you know, I mean, the society has to function. And there's so many people running around out there screaming and yelling about the rainforest. They ain't never done a damn thing to help. And what Dylan's right about is, you don't get to decide what Peru does with the rainforest, nor should you have the right to. I mean, if we're going to say we believe in liberty and freedom, then the people in Peru get to decide what to do with Peru. And hopefully they'll learn from our mistakes and make less of them. But there's a lot of people there just trying to survive. And being able to feed themselves is important. And there's ways to do it that actually would work in concert with the rainforest. That's what we're going to talk about next week. But don't they get to decide what to do with their land? Just like we got to decide what to do with our land. Just like when you buy a piece of land, you think there should be no HOA and no county and nobody bothering you. And as long as you're not hurting anybody else, you should be able to do with your land as you see fit. I mean, that's something I've just been thinking a lot about lately as we talk about all these other countries and say what they should or should not be doing with their land. And it's so damn easy for us. No one here has ever had to turn off an Xbox or whatever the hell game system people are using now. I don't even know if Xbox is still a thing. I, I ain't played video games since I had an Atari, what was it, a 2600 or 2800, whatever the old Atari with the one joystick was, right? The one before the 5200, 2600, 26 or 2800, whatever that was, right? The original Atari, I haven't played video games since I played on one of those. So I really don't know, but I know that no one's had to turn one off. I know that the people out there bitching about capitalism on Twitter and whatnot and Instagram are wearing you know, clothing made by capitalists on a phone made by capitalists using a network that's provided by capitalists and, and, and so oblivious to the reality. And I just think you know, we should think a little bit more before we say what somebody else should do, especially when we don't live there and, and we don't know what it is to have to live there and not have the options that we have in this country, because for all our flaws, we are the freest nation that exists today in a lot of ways. Not always. We've talked about that this week and last week, too. But not always. But in many ways, we are. We have freedoms and luxuries in this country that you just don't get in other countries. And you certainly don't get in huge parts of South or Central America or Asia or Africa. 
those yet developed to be developed areas. I mean, you don't know what you would do. Well, actually, I would say you do know what you would do. If cutting down 40 acres of trees would feed your kids so they don't die, I bet you cut those trees down. You say, but Jack, because of you and, and other people you've had, a, I know other ways. But if you didn't, if you knew I can put a farm in, there's a government subsidy, I can feed my kids, I'm going to have a job, you're going to cut the trees. You're going to burn the trees. Because people do what they need to do in order to survive, and it's something we need to understand a little bit. But the bigger issue here is, you know, when I talk about circle of influence, circle of concern, and I've really turned more towards circle of control. Influence is one thing. I can say something and maybe it makes a difference. But control means I can actually do something and actually control at least a piece of it. And circle of concern, there are things in that circle of concern that are really important. I do believe that the rainforest as a whole, in, in fact, the forests of the world are incredibly important to the health of our planet. I think there, it's probably the single biggest thing that man can either protect or create. Because we can create forests where there are not forests now. They can have an impact on our global stability, our global climate. And I'm not talking about warming and cooling as much as I'm talking about rain cycles. If you restore forests, you restore rain cycles that have become absent. Scrub desert becomes forest become scrub forest, and desert becomes scrub desert. If we go and we plant a forest at the edge of that current scrub forest, we create entire new hydrology cycles. But you don't control the entire United States, but you control your own backyard. And you can go out and find places to plant trees, and you can find people to help you pay for trees, and you can find people to help you plant trees. I want you to think about this. If 10% of this nation planted 10 trees a year, and I want you to think about how hard would it really be if you said, I am going to make one of my life goals to plant 10 trees, whether they're on my property or somebody else's property, to plant 10 trees a year for the rest of my life. How hard would it really be to be? And understand, it doesn't mean you have to go out and buy really expensive, you know, designer pecan trees. They can be, you know, a, a locust, a honey locust, or a black locust. You know, please do thornless on the honey locust, or you know, or, or some other tree that you can get for like a couple bucks or less. You can go to your state's. Uh, your state's forestry department or ag department or whatever, lots of uh, places that they have where the state has nurseries that will provide you trees for free or for cheap. So the, mon the monetary issue is not even there. Like if you can afford to spend 50 bucks a year, you can probably plant 50, let alone 10 trees. You can go pick up acorns and grow 10 a year and plant the seedlings next year. I mean, there's no financial hurdle there. So anybody that wants to can plant 10 trees a year. Well, how many people are there right now in the United States of America? Well, the answer is about 330 million. Okay, so I want you to think about this. 10% of a number uh, doing 10 is the number. We, we divide by 10 to get 10%, and if we multiply by 10, we're back where we started. You follow? That means if 10% of this country would plant 10 trees a year, 
we could plant an additional 330 million trees a year. It, real easy math times 10, isn't it? That would be 3 billion, 300 million, 3.3 billion trees could be planted in the United States in the next decade if 10% of the people would plant 10 trees. I want to make it a little bit more clear for you. You could plant 100. I'd love to hear from anybody that would, could really make a case to me that if you really wanted to, you don't have the resources and the wherewithal to be able to plant 100 trees a year. This includes putting an ad on Craigslist and said, I will plant a free tree in your yard for you. Just call me up and I'll come. Here's the area that I'll work. You see, so don't give me your excuses of why you can't. Right? So you can get the trees for a dollar to free, and you can get places to put them. So anybody that wants to could plant 100 trees a year. If you planted 10 a month, and you could do 10 on a Saturday, that's 120. All right? To make that same 3.3 billion trees, if people are willing to do 100 trees, we only need 1%. 1% of this country. And then all of a sudden, the thing that we think we don't have any control over, well, maybe we do. Maybe we have some control over it. And I guarantee you, if you had that level of support going on, then there would be smaller and larger organizations that would spring up and start doing fundraising and say, hey, well, let's, let's buy some land. Let's buy some land and put it into a conservatory so nobody can screw it up. And you can send your trees here and we'll plant them for you. And then maybe we could get... 10% to do 100. And we could do a billion trees a year in the United States. You know, I wonder how long we would do that before the problem actually turned to the point of, well, we just don't have any more place to plant trees. I think it would last a while. But if we could plant 3.3 billion trees a year, which is actually doable if you just do the math, that would be over 30 billion trees 30 billion trees I can't even get my head around and think think of this a billion is a thousand million so it's 30 thousand million trees we could plant if we could get 10% of the people to be willing to fund and or do the planting of 100 trees a year and we can produce the trees for almost nothing and you tell me that we don't have control and you also say, well, Jack, how do we get those 1% or 10% to plant 10 to 100? You don't. You go out and you plant your 10 or you plant your 100 and you tell people about it. And we see where it goes from there. And that way, at least you've done something. And a lot of things people do that they think they've done something, you've done a lot more by planting 10 trees or 100 trees or, frankly, one tree. With that, we had another great show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you like this show and want to support the work that we do, all you got to do is join the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more, sign up, get the discounts. Membership pays for itself in spades. So it's not even free in the end. It costs you money up front. You use the discounts. It actually pays to be a member. 
membership, in the words of an old marketing campaign, does in fact have its privileges. The other thing you can do, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You go there. Everything recommended uh, is something I own. I put my own money into. I bought it, and I would buy it again. Today is a simple little product, but I think you'll like it. It's a tape measure. And I, I, I found this for people, or I actually recommended this when somebody asked me. I didn't realize that there were a lot of people out there looking for a good tape measure. But I actually had to find a good, cheap tape measure that didn't break because I have gnomes on my property. I do. little, Not the little ceramic ones. I have real gnomes. They steal my shit. You think I'm kidding? No, they do. You know what they steal? They steal fingernail clippers. They steal Sharpie markers. Uh, they steal pens in general. And they steal tape measures. I'm talking, I can be in the garage, have my tape measure, measure a piece of wood, don't even walk away from the table, and you've done it. You look around, where's your tape measure? Where'd it go? It's not on your hip, it's not in your pocket, it's not on the table. You didn't leave, you didn't even turn around. Where'd it go? The gnome's got it. I don't know what it is, and it's not real known, so we know it's, a, I'm making a joke in case you think I've lost my mind. Uh, no, I didn't have an aneurysm pop or something, no, it's it, it's a joke. But yeah, I mean, tape measure all the things that just disappear. So I decided I wanted something I could buy, like, you know, four or five of them without breaking the bank, throw them in my drawers and stuff, and then if I lost one, I could just go get another one until the gnomes gave it back. And I found these ones by a company called Coleman, uh, K-O-M-E-L-O-N. And they come in 12, 16, and 25 foot. I really recommend the 12 and the 25 foot as what you standardize on. You read the article if you want to know why. You can find that at T-Spaz or at the website. And um, they're just great. And what I love about them is, one, they don't break. I've had so many tape measures, you know, recoil and break or not want to recoil or whatever. But the other thing is, when you stick the tape out, you know how most tape measures have a little button, you push it down, it locks it? No. This one's a smart tape measure. You pull it out, it's locked already. You push the button to let it in. Because I've never, like, stuck a tape out to measure something and said, gee, I wish that would come back in right now. You know, and the gnomes never want to hold it for you. So this is just a better way to go. They're very affordable. Um, you can get a two-pack of the 12-footers for a whopping 15 bucks. That's $7.50 a piece. And the 25-foot longer one for your bigger projects, it's under 10 bucks. One of those simple little projects or little little products that makes your life just a little bit better. And they're a high-visibility green, so when the gnomes do give them back, at least you can see them when you find them laying under the desk where you swear to God you didn't put them, but you probably did when you bent over to pick up your beer, I'm just saying. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. Time for our song of the day. Song of the day today as we wrap up 1989 week. Songs that are 30 years old this year. Yeah, 1989 was... 30 years ago. Isn't that crazy? Today's song, I've, I've talked about how some of the songs this week are songs I really remember from my high school years. And some of them like, yeah, I knew that song was out there, but it wasn't really a mo This song, I mean, if you were in high school in the 80s, I don't know how you don't know this song. Uh, Tom Petty, I Won't Back Down. Just an awesome song. Great song for a Friday. And I think that's the, the, the attitude we all need to take with our goals in life. Don't back down. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't.